studios at home of WMYU. This is In-Depth on Sports. I am your host, Nico Colucci, and welcome back, everybody. Uh, I know we are now uh, remote as a result of many of the challenges that the pandemic has forced upon us, but we got to do what we got to do, and we are now broadcasting from a recorded space. But regardless, welcome back, everybody. Welcome to 2022 so much great sports stuff going on in the last couple of weeks or so. I mean, last night you had a fantastic national championship game with Georgia taking down Alabama and winning their first national title in over 40 years. Absolutely thrilling for the people over in Athens. We have the NFL playoff picture finally set after weeks and weeks of close races. We now finally know what the playoff matchups are going to be. We're going to get into all of that. And we also have Rich Kalachi joining us this week. He is going to be discussing the future of sports content creation. He is the CRO over at Overtime. And I got to say, this is this is one of the episodes I have been most excited about going forward. And I'm really excited just to get into it. And, you know, I think the first thing, you know, I want to say just going in as we now open up the new year is that, you know, with all these difficulties coming around over the last couple of weeks or so, rising cases, it's good to know that sports still remain just at the forefront of of American culture and it's it's so I'm so happy to see just a fantastic slate of NFL and college football over the last few weeks or so. Uh, no progress on the MLB lockout, but uh, let's be honest, are we really surprised about that? No, I, I don't really think so. But you know what? Just so happy to see such a great national championship game, and that's what I want to get into first here. I mean, you have Alabama going into this one, you know, they're they're stifling, stifling a little bit on the injury front. I mean, John Mechie, who has been the guy for Alabama throughout the entire season, um, I arguably could have set the Alabama records for uh, catches and receiving yards in the season, did not, was out for the, uh, was out for the majority of the final part of the season and could not play in the national championship game. So that means it's got to be left to Jamison Williams, who in turn gets hurt after a great play that could have shifted the momentum for Alabama, but he in turn was also ruled out in the second quarter and thus setting up a great opportunity for Georgia, who managed to take the game by a final score of 30 Three to eighteen, and now you know if you're if you're Alabama, are you disappointed? Sure, of course you are. But if from what from the standpoint of a fan, there you have to imagine that both Bryce Young and Will Anderson, who have stayed there throughout the entire season, no injuries, they sort of the linchpin on both the offensive side of the ball and the defensive side of the ball. Nick Saban, when he went up to the press conference at the end of the game, he brutally defended his guys and saying how great they played. And despite all these difficulties they had to deal with, you know, no big play threats on the offensive side of the ball, they still managed to give Georgia a hell of a ride for three for three quarters until obviously it all came crashing down in the fourth. But from the standpoint of Alabama, you got to be happy with this season. I mean, th this was a year where, you know, you're expected, yeah, you're going to make the college football playoff, but when you lose your top wide receiver, expectations are a little less now. I mean, everyone going into the season, if you remember, we had Clemson as a favorite to be in the top four, and look what happened there. I mean, they didn't even manage, they barely cracked the top 25 for barely any part of the season, and now, you know, you had Georgia and Alabama come in now as the clear favorites, and then they they did meet up in the national championship game and now you know if if you have these lo these lost assets there i mean alabama played to their potential they played as hard as they possibly could there's nothing i can blame nick saban for there's nothing i can blame blame bryce young for there's certainly nothing i can blame will anderson for and especially especially on the defensive side of the ball alabama this reminded me of some of their teams from back in the uh early 2010s where you know they were led by aj mccarron at quarterback and you know these were not teams that were going to be you know big splashdowns on the offensive side of the ball. These were these were defensive oriented teams. I mean, this was they were not averaging, you know, 40, 50 points a game like they did last year when they had Devontae Smith and Najee Harris. And, you know, this is a team where, you know, you have a running back like Brian Robinson 
who, you know, it was definitely tough for him against the Georgia defense, but he had been waiting for his entire Alabama career to finally be the starter after tons and tons of great Alabama running backs came and went to the NFL, and now he finally gets his shot, and he had a pretty good season overall. I mean, in the game against Cincinnati, he set the record for most rushing yards by a running back in a, um, in a bowl game for Alabama, and, you know, I, I really can't fault them. This was everything they could have hoped for this season, despite all the difficulties they had to face. And in terms of, you know, in terms of Georgia, I mean, you've been waiting since Herschel Walker to get a title. And, you know, you have Stetson Bennett, who is the ultimate story. I mean, you know, he comes in, he comes into this, uh, he comes into this season, you know, he, he has been third on the depth chart. He has been behind, he has had to deal with Jake Fromm ahead of him, who has done a fantastic, who did a fantastic job. And obviously now is with the New York Giants in the fledgling state of New York football has come to an come to an end this season but we'll get to that a little later but regardless you have a great story works his way up walk on and you know coming from a junior college and now he is the starter at one of the greatest college football programs in in history I would say they're up there amongst the likes of Alabama and Michigan and Ohio State and Notre Dame and you know with this title that sort of cements them among that royalty of college football and with that great story and some of the gr the great performances from, well, I would say one of his better performances. I mean, this was certainly, you know, it was his, it was going to be, it was all up to him really. And, you know, that fumble, let, let's, let's talk about that, that fumble there for a, uh, for a second there. If you, uh, if you watch the game, you saw where, uh, the Alabama defense comes rushing at him and the ball is forced out and a, on a, what looked like a fumble. And of course, the Alabama defense did not realize this. It looked like an incomplete pass. And, you know, the ball is picked up on close to the sideline and it's by a hair Alabama ball going the other way with just 15 yards to go. I mean, at that point, if you're a Georgia fan, you're that is the, that's the low point right there. I mean, Alabama has a golden opportunity to score, which they do. They make it an 18-13 game. And um at that point, it's uh, excuse me, a 19-13 game. And at that point, it was it was basically, you know, okay, now we really need the offense to step up because the defense on uh, for Alabama looks like they're unbeatable. I mean, Will Anderson, uh, arguably one of his best games of his career at Alabama. And then what happened was Georgia sort of came into its own. You know, they found a groove on the offensive side of the ball. Stetson Bennett, consistent passing. There were at one point since the fumble, no incompletions, 88 yards, two touchdowns. He, he looked fantastic. I mean, uh, it was uh, it, it really looked as though he came into his own. The momentum shifted his way. And then, of course, with the lead, now you obviously have to make sure that Bryce Young doesn't pull off any other miracles like he did in the Iron Bowl. And, you know, you get the pick six, and Georgia finally wins its national title after 40 years of waiting. And if you're a college football fan, you got to be happy. I mean, this is, you know, the Alabama is the 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 death star of college football. No one no one likes it when they win. I mean, they they draw comparisons to the Yankees, the Cowboys, the Lakers all the time. They they win, they they, they win with no regard and they have fans that are so passionate yet, you know, come off as arrogant because of the success of their team. And that's usually has been the case. And now, you know, when you have a team like Georgia, who mind you, was absolutely decimated in the SEC championship game by 17 points. When you lose 41 to 24 and you look lost on both the offensive and defensive side of the ball, it's sort of a wake-up call for them that you have to either A, change your game plan, or B, completely rework your offensive game uh, set to in order to, you know, take down such a um, a menace of, of college football. And that's what they did. I mean, they, they used the game as motivation and it worked out for them so well. I mean, this was, you know, I, it was interesting. If you looked at the betting lines going into the game, it was surprising to me when I saw that Georgia was favored. I thought it would be, I would, I would say Bama, but I would have said by maybe one or two, not a lot. I would have at least thought Alabama would be favored. I would have never thought that Georgia would have the advantage going in because, you know, the, after looking so belittled on uh, a, a month ago, it was, it was shocking to me that Vegas thought of them so highly and you can see why now I mean hindsight is 2020 let's be honest but I mean you can understand how this 
this game served that SEC championship game served as that turning point for them. And I think as the line moved up, I remember at one point it was up to three and a half before the game started. And you know, you can understand why just because of the momentum that seemed to be shifting their way over the course of the last, excuse me, the last um, few weeks or so. And, you know, you get this, you get to this point where it's clearly going to be a close game, but you don't know exactly what's going to happen. And Georgia proved to everyone out there that they are both A, an elite program. Stetson Bennett proved that he was the guy and could manage to handle all the pressure from going to a walk-on to now, I would say, a legend in Georgia football history. I mean, he, he certainly doesn't have the statistics of a Herschel Walker or an Aaron Murray, um, but or even a Todd Gurley for that matter, but he certainly goes into the lore as a storybook hero in a storied college football program, and that is something that no one can take away from him, no matter his statistics. He is a title winner for the first, and Georgia is a title winner for the first time since 1980. And, you know, I, I it was it was a great game to watch. I really enjoyed seeing how, you know, this was going to be, I would say, just as good as any Alabama-Clemson game. You know, we had many of those over the last five, six years or so. And now, you know, Georgia has sort of replaced Clemson as sort of like the team that has to go up against Alabama. And this was now their point. We're now after losing to them in a national championship game three years ago in 2018 with Mr. Tua Tagovailoa throwing a massive 65-yard pass after an injury. And, you know, he comes into the game and just, you know, etches himself into Alabama history and now this is their point they finally get their revenge so great stuff in college football this week but I want to move into the NFL because you know as you know we haven't talked in a couple of weeks and it has been well it has been remarkable with some of the um wild finishes both this week in week 18 the overtime game between the 49ers and the Rams we're definitely going to talk about that we're definitely going to talk about the Chargers Raiders game where obviously America was hoping for a tie which one and Justin Herbert actually I saw that uh video on uh on Twitter where you know uh, people thought he was saying I've never hoped for a tie in my life so much and I can understand why you make the playoffs and so we're going to get into that game of course and I also do want to touch a little bit on some of the week 17 games especially the game between Cincinnati and Kansas City that was a fantastic game as well as the game between um Arizona and Dallas and uh and just the few other stuff going in but as you know we do have a NFL playoff picture set we have a wild card round all set up we got three games on Sunday two on Saturday and one for the first time on Monday and you know you have Pats Bills Eagles Bucks 49ers Cowboys Steelers Chiefs Chargers uh, Cardinals Rams and Raiders Bengals all six going forward on Saturday Sunday and Monday and it's funny, you know, when you think back to, you know, some of our first episodes, we were thinking of terms in terms of, you know, who was going to stand out, who was going to win their respective divisions. And if you look at how it played out, pretty much what we expected in terms of division winners, Kansas City, two games up on uh, on Las Vegas, they took the West. The Bills did have a tough run of it, but they did win the East. Uh, Tennessee took managed to take over things in the South after an absolute disaster in Indianapolis against the Jaguars. We're going to talk about that a little bit. And then, you know, in the NFC, Dallas ran away with it in the NFC East. Uh, the Rams did overtake the Cardinals, which was uh, sort of a product of both their moves at the deadline, acquiring Von Miller and Odell Beckham Jr. That sort of propelled them ahead of an Arizona team that seemed to lose all that momentum that they had earlier in the year. Uh, and then, of course, you had Green Bay easily taken in the north and Tampa Bay easily taken in the south. The only the only division that was really shocking, well, not really necessarily shocking, but you had the Ravens who fell off the face of the earth going from a team in a great position at 8-3 and three to 8-9 uh, to after a six-game losing streak. I mean, it's understandable. No Lamar Jackson, it makes sense. But, I mean, it, it's... You would have thought they would have at least been able to sneak in there for a wild card spot and hope that Lamar could possibly come back for a playoff run. But, you know, uh, uh, Cincinnati, I would say best young talent in the league on the offensive side of the ball, bar none. And they really are could be one of the teams that has the momentum going into the playoffs and could potentially pull off a run with not exactly a formidable opponent against the Las Vegas Raiders, but could easily, I could see easily taking one or two rounds deep in this playoff race. But let's talk first about this week's action. Um, you know, we got to first talk about the, um, the game between the 49ers and the Rams, where you had 
The Rams had a clear, they're 17-3 at the half. It's looking pretty promising. Matthew Stafford, absolutely fantastic, performing fantastically. You have Cooper Cup just doing what he does. And really, uh, what I thought was really important was they were taking advantage of the tight end game with Tyler Higby. And I would say, you know, he only had 55 yards, but he did have two touchdowns. And I thought, you know, the way he performed, just the sort of the heart and hustle that he um, sort of embodied when he went into this game, I, you know, he was fighting for every single freaking yard he could and uh, there was one play in particular um during the fourth quarter where you know it was it, it was a like a three yard out and it was looking like he was just going to run out of bounds but he fought forward completely to get to that uh, to get to be within one yard of a first he broke a couple of tackles which is if you notice there are only a few selective tight ends in the nfl that can do that and higby you know i didn't really think of him in that category you know you think kelsey you think george kittle and you know he really proved to a lot of people actually including myself that he is among i would say the top seven top six tight ends in the nfl i would say i mean it, it could be a product of the great offense they have as well as you know just all, uh, all the weapons that they have on the receiving end but still regardless very impressed with Tyler Higby in this one but that didn't matter in the long run because we got to talk about the fourth quarter because you have you have San Francisco coming back okay it's 17 to 17 going into the fourth quarter you need something in order to you need a, a good drive and Matthew Stafford managed to put one together a beautiful pass to Cooper Cup who manages to stick two feet in there in the end zone for the touchdown to give the Rams the lead going into with five, with about like two minutes to go all you have to do if you are the Rams is well you you have well San Francisco you know they 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 can't convert all you have to do is essentially get a first down that's it get a first down and it almost looked like Sean McVay kind of just mailed it in. He he under, I understand that you know they're gonna burn all of their timeouts and you're gonna give them 90 seconds if you don't get the first down. But you gotta throw a pass play. I mean, this is McVay is supposedly one of the sort of the initiators of the game. He is one of the more um, versatile um not necessarily coaching strategies he's more along the lines of Pete Carroll he'll go for it more on for on fourth down he'll take more risks and you would think that with Stafford performing pretty well he's not he's only got one interception at this point um it's gonna be a good chance for him to take advantage of all the weapons he has on the receiving end and he doesn't he hands it off three times and says, okay, Jimmy, here you go, 90 seconds. And what does he do? Well, if you if you have the playoffs on the line, you're gonna you're gonna go for it and have a good drive. I mean, it was almost like you could see it happening in slow motion beforehand, and you just you watched it, and there you go. I mean, you have Debo Samuel, who again looked amazing. I mean, 45 yards and a touchdown on the rushing end, plus 95 yards on the receiving end. I mean, he's arguably becoming one of the first dual threat rushing receiving players in the NFL and you know if you give Jimmy 90 seconds he's going to take advantage of it when the playoffs are on the line they tie the game uh and the 49ers get the ball first in overtime and that was it I mean it was it was a field goal obviously they won the game on it didn't necessarily have to do with that coin flip but I mean all the momentum was gone and it just it all fell San Francisco's way and I really blame Sean McVay for that I mean it was you know, you're going to go into the playoffs, you know, you're going to have one of the top four seeds, you're going to have a reasonably, well, actually, I think it'll be close between, um, uh, New, uh, against, uh, for Los Angeles against Arizona on that Monday night game, which will be definitely very, very exciting, the only game that day, um, but still, I mean, this is McVay's fault for not giving Matthew Stafford the chance to find someone like Tyler Higby or Cooper Cup on a third and seven or a third and six which he could have easily done and put the game away I mean this was it was 24 to 17 you got it in the bag all you need is a first and you run three running plays to a guy who hasn't really who hasn't played all year Cam Akers you know I mean it's it, injuries obviously play him he, he played in this year he had 13 snaps in the uh in the game this uh on uh on Sunday but you know this was it was I, I, I'm at a loss for words. I mean, this is this was certainly their game to win, and they blew it, especially being one of the best teams in the NFC. I'm surprised to see such a, a well-regarded coach like Sean McVay make that kind of decision. But, you know, certainly surprising to see, and we'll see if that 
uh, impedes them in the playoffs when they have to go up against such a high-powered offense like Arizona. I mean, it's not necessarily what we were seeing at the beginning of the year with that with that hot uh, ten and one start. But you know, now we're at the point where they seem like pretty even teams, and it's going to be really close to see how this uh, to see how that plays out. But then you also got to talk about Chargers Raiders game. I mean, you know, this was this was a situation where. You know, you have you have Pittsburgh, you have Los Angeles, and you have Las Vegas. And, you know, you have a point where Pittsburgh gets in. I mean, this was sort of their, um, this was, it was Ben Roethlisberger's time to shine this week. And, you know, he proved that he put it together. He actually, he was talking about how, you know, he wasn't thinking about it as like one last ride. He pulls out the overtime win against the, Ra- against the Ravens, a huge win. And it leaves it obviously up to the Chargers. Raiders game and you know now you had well it was an overtime game but I think everyone was just so focused on that tie because everyone knew if Jacksonville beats Indianapolis which they did completely shocking by the way I mean Carson Wentz who is given sort of this is a second chance for him in Indianapolis after sort of having to deal with injuries and inconsistent play over in Philadelphia he goes into a situation in Indianapolis where you it's Philip Rivers is the previous guy. He's coming out after a reasonable good se- a reasonably good season and you know it was it for it was it for him and you know Wentz was going to sort of maintain that caliber of play and which he did. But you are in a position if you're Indianapolis where you are in. All you have to do is beat arguably the worst team in the NFL. They have the number 1 draft pick and you get obliterated. I mean John, well, kudos to Jacksonville for shutting down Jonathan Taylor. I mean, no team has been able to do that the entire season. You could argue Jonathan Taylor could win the NFL MVP this year. It's shocking to see. It's been a while since we've had a running back who has such a dominant hold on the game. I mean, the only player I can think of that really embodied that would be Adrian Peterson about, uh, you know, back when his 2000 rushing yard season. Uh, but this was, um, this was shocking to me that Jacksonville's defense, which has been below average for the entire season, it's not horrible. It's it's not great by any stretch of the word. I mean, their offense is really where they've had the most struggles throughout this season. But still, you got to figure that Indianapolis, is this is their game to win. I, I'm stunned to think that anyone could possibly think that Jacksonville could pull this one out and you know the spread was 15 and a half and you know this was anyone most people would pick Jacksonville with that spread I mean it's 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 a large spread I would have thought it could be a close game but you would figure that Indianapolis would sort of have the light bulb go out that okay we need to pull ahead at some point and they didn't Jacksonville give them credit just 77 yards for Jonathan Taylor Trevor Lawrence you know, this is why that Jacksonville head coaching scenario is so um, is so coveted because you can sort of see the pieces that are there that could possibly s- sort of give Jacksonville fans a little bit of hope that, you know, you still have Josh Allen and Miles Jack who have been relatively consistent and have stayed with Jacksonville um, throughout their entirety for most of the entirety of their careers and have been relatively good on the defensive side of the ball. Excuse me. And now you have... Um, You know, on the offensive side of the ball, you have Trevor Lawrence, who is, in his first year, worked out sort of the kinks in the early part of the season and put off a pretty good performance this week. And now, you know, okay, so it's 26-11. Let's get back to the Chargers-Raiders game. And now, you know, you're, you're shocked. Like, okay, so now both teams can tie. If they tie, they're both in. And everyone wants it. And obviously, you know, if you're the NFL, just the league itself, you can't let that happen. So you have a game where it's going back and forth. I mean, the Raiders had the advantage going in 10 nothing after the first. I mean, Derek Carr, um, you know, it wasn't necessarily his best game, but I really want to give out the award. Just a big, big performance from Josh Jacobs, who has been struggling a little bit of late. I mean, you know, he's had to deal with a lot of injuries. He was one of the big Alabama running backs that um, that Brian Robinson had to play behind over the entire entirety of his college career. And now, obviously, he is a Raider and... You know, he's he hasn't really had the chance to be sort of in it. And now over the last few weeks or so, he's figured it out. I mean, 129 against Denver and 132 in a touchdown against uh, against L.A. this week. And then, of course, before that, against Indianapolis, 63 plus a TD. He sort of is coming into his own injuries. If the injuries are behind him, he is a top five running back in the NFL. 
I, I completely believe it. I mean, he is an Alabama product who has been consistent whenever he is out on the field. If he stays healthy, the Raiders have arguably one of the best running backs in the NFL, bar none. And I'm excited to see what he can do against this Cincinnati defense, which has been reasonably good against the run. But I personally think if, if they can stop Josh Jacobs, it is the Bengals game. Definitely. I think Joe Burrow and his offense can be consistent. They they can easily beat this Las Vegas team. But if they can't stop Josh Jacobs, that is the X factor in this game. Definitely. If they can't stop Josh Jacobs, I don't see a way. Uh, I, 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 see, I see it being way closer than anyone might think it could be. Um, but regardless, great game from Josh Jacobs. I mean, you have a, a situation where you have to wonder. Is this Brandon Staley's fault? I mean, it was a bizarre ending. You want to have them... Do you want to go for the tie? Yeah, you do. I mean, it's just... it's it's It was interesting. It was, like, surprising to think that the Chargers could have ended their season at many points throughout overtime. This was a point where you could have stopped the clock. You could have been in a position where if you tie... You'd be heading into the faux season as the seventh seed, and you'd have to play the Chiefs, which would be very difficult. But this was be—I I do blame Brandon Staley for this. I mean, this was a position where I think if you play for the tie, they would have kneeled. I mean, another thing we also saw—did Austin Eckler say that you know they wanted to go for the tie? Maybe, but you know, it, it's if you have the tie, it's almost as if like okay, fine. You know, I think in the long in the long run, obviously, it's a bad look if you go for the tie. But yeah, you should. I mean, this is this is a this is a winner winner out win and win and in situation. You can't take any chances with that. And then you know the Raiders uh, chose to run on that third down in overtime. Uh, they brought a, a it was a Josh Jacobs run, ten yards. They get the field goal attempt, and they win the game. Now, they could have kneeled. They could have. Um, but it's... that. What are you, you going to do? You have to take the win. You can't, you can't obviously, just play for that sort of, uh, sort of easy-peasy, you know, okay, let's run out the clock. And it would have been great to see. I think everyone in America would have loved it. But, you know, this is, this is not... This is not what the, the the NFL would be. Well, it would have been a great game. Let's face it that way. But I think you know the zero zero thing that people were talking about beforehand. I think that would have been um, shocking to see. But regardless, great games in Week 18. So excited to see the NFL playoffs for the first time. We have seven wild card games going into this week, and it's. It sets it up for a ratings bonanza. Um, you have a a situation where you have blue bloods going up against each other with San Francisco and Dallas. You have a division rivalry in two instances with the New England Buffalo game and the Arizona LA game, both of whom have been tangling with each other throughout the entire season. Patriots Bills, I mean, we've seen this matchup play out a few times this year where you have in their most recent the Bills taking the Patriots down 33 to 21. And you have to wonder if Bill Belichick's Pats are a pretender in this league at this point. You know, it was everyone really loved them when they were on that winning streak. It's sort of everyone sort of jumped on board thinking, oh, okay, this is Bill Belichick's team again. They're back. But, you know, it, it's still not. I know Tom Brady obviously is. Way, uh, long gone in Tampa Bay by now, obviously, but um, it, it's it's not the same when you see Belichick out there, sort of wondering whether or not Mac Jones is going to find that sort of rhythm that could lead them to winning this year. No question about it. This is a team that will contend for years to come with Jones under center. But if this is the this is not the year to me for them. I think this is Buffalo's game to win. They are favored in this game. I mean, this is. The Patriots kind of, I, I saw a quote from an NFL article that they limped into the playoffs. That's very accurate. It wasn't really theirs to win. They sort of had that good run, put themselves in a good position in a in a league where 10 and 7 or not, uh, 10 and 7 gets you in. I mean, you're in if you do that. And they did that. They managed to sneak away with that. They finished, they were 10 and 6. They lost uh, this weekend, but now you're in the position where you got it, you're in. And then, you know, if you talk about the losing teams this week, the losing teams of the year, just just a brief tap on NFL football this week. Um, 
the Giants. Oh my God. Oh my God. The Giants. The and the Jets too. I mean, but the Giants was just it was more of the show of Jake Fromm taking that little sneak on third and nine at his own four yard line. It was like you were throwing the white flag. It was. It was. Oh my God. Oh my God. I just. I. I don't have words. I don't have words. It was just. There's nothing more I can say to determine how bad the state of the organization is right now, both in, uh, both for the Maras. Um. Uh, and the Jets ownership group, I just, there, there are things to be fixed. There are good pieces in both cases, but just a fledgling state. But we have a guest to get to. It's going to be Rich Kalachi. He is talking the future of sports marketing and sports promotion on social media. He's going to talk about overtime elite as he has been a huge proponent of the success of this over the course of the last um, few years or so. And, and uh, excuse me, the last year or so. And I'm really, I was really excited to talk to him and see what he had to say about both his time working in overtime as well as the future of sports content for the millions and millions of young people out there. So stick around. We got Rich Kalachi coming up right after this. Welcome back to the show, everybody. And joining me this week, uh, we have the chief revenue officer at Overtime, one of the biggest growing sports media enterprises in the United States and frankly around the world. Joining me today, Mr. Rich Kalachi. Rich, how are you doing today, my friend? Well, Ian, we've got six inches of snow on the ground here in New York, but I'm uh, doing well and uh, happy to be on the phone with you. Well, you know what? Thanks so much for taking the time out of your day. I know, you know, with the snow day going on, obviously you've got a lot going on at home, I'm sure, but we appreciate you taking the time with us today. And, you know, one of the first things I wanted to dive in with you on today is sort of just talk about what you're really excited about at overtime right now. You know, there are so many different things coming up. Uh, I mean, you've got uh, NBA season in full swing. You've got overtime elite, which we're going to get into a little bit later. Uh, but one of the, uh, what, what's the main thing you're excited about in terms of new ventures at overtime right now? Yeah, I think the, the thing that I'm most excited about for overtime is, is just the, our ability to continue to storytell and, you know, engage with our community of 58 million fans and followers around the world in a way that really nobody else is. And um, every day when our team comes to work, you know, we, we have the chance to, you know, do something that, that's a bit different. And in, in doing so, uh, it's a conversation no different than this conversation where it's, it's two people exchanging ideas instead of a one-way communication. Mm -hmm. I think one thing that's really frustrated um, myself as a professional, and I think a lot of people as as sports fans is the the one-way dynamic of, of sports media so whether you're listening to talk radio mm -hmm. or watching television or even reading you know an article or seeing a post on instagram mm -hmm. um your your inability to truly engage with the creator of that content right. limits the vitality of it and i think what what excites me at overtime is everything we do uh, is empowered by two-way communication we right. actually you know call the community and depend upon it and make sure that we're telling the stories that really really matter and we reflect that in the content. You know, for example, we just did something with, you know, first round draft pick Justin Fields and in, in the World Champion Chicago Bears this past year with General Motors. Mm -hmm. And it was just it was just fun that even even the principal actor of the series, Mr. Fields himself, mm -hmm. felt compelled to post something on Instagram that talked about what he done with General Motors and, and the vehicle he got for his dad. And and I just think that's those are kind of things and, and stories that you just don't find uh, elsewhere in sports. And that's what makes me really excited. Do you think that, you know, you talk about this sort of two-way communication, is that what makes it so attractive to younger fans? Because I know over time is a little bit new onto the scene, but I feel like your core demographic is really people under the age of 20 to 25. Do you think that sort of two-way demographic, that two-way communication is enticing for them? That sort of idea that you have, a, you know, a say and an input into what's being created? I think that's a big part of it, but I think the other the other part is this, this old adage about you know sports is for losers. Mm. And what I mean by that is historically the majority of sports fans cheer for losing teams, mm. and it's just one of those you know mathematical oddities that nobody really understands. But you know there's only one team that wins the championship in the respective league, and mm. for the most part. Uh, every other team that doesn't pyramid up to that championship game has a losing record, mm. and the reality is. By extension, most fan bases are cheering for teams that don't have winning records. And what I think is interesting about overtime is, you know, we see these different insights from 12 to 17 year olds and 18 to 24 year olds and even, you know, 25 to 34 year olds. 
they've been socialized in a way where they don't really want to be on a losing team. And just just things like, you know, the, the regional bias I had as a child, no matter where I went, I was taking my Chicago Bears allegiance with me. Right. Um, and that just doesn't happen nowadays. I mean, people trade NBA teams as a fan like it's like it's a social arrangement. Hmm. And and it's just a very different dynamic because they want to be they want to be around these winning teams and teams that are training or teams that have star players. Mm-hmm. And I think what what overtime does is overtime's created a community where we're in a weird way everybody wins. And I think that's a really valuable insight um, in the sense that when you have overtime, you know, on your hoodie or on your Mm t-shirt, what you really do is you have a badging mechanism that tells, you know, who's ever in the room with you or who's on the bus with you or on the subway with you that, Hey, I'm I'm part of this overtime community. Mm -hmm. And as a result, I'm part of a winning team, Mm -hmm. even though, even though overtime doesn't play basketball and overtime doesn't play football, it doesn't have a, a, a baseball team. Uh, I think people love to have that association with overtime because, you know, just like, you know, the American flag, it represents something bigger than just our, just ourselves. Gotcha. I see. So it's it's interesting you say that, you know, a lot of fans nowadays don't form that sort of bond and uh, don't necessarily form that sort of bond with their legion or team. And you seem to be describing here that overtime really is that sort of link and bond that they have and people are proud of that. Would you say that's accurate or do you think it's more along the lines of sort of representing the new age of sports fandom? Um, I I think what it's, it's a lot of different things, but yes, that's essentially what I'm saying. You know, what's, what's interesting about social media as a business construct is it was meant to bring everyone together and it actually just creates thicker walls between factions, Mm -hmm. you know, so whether it's North versus South, left versus right, America versus Europe, Mm -hmm. you know, Trump versus Biden, whatever the constituencies are, um, social media actually creates more tension and almost warring, warring factions, Mm. um, than what they were on their own. So as social media divides us, what overtime does sitting on top of all seven of these platforms Mm -hmm. actually brings people back together. Mm-hmm. And if you think about the the O is a very symbolic mechanism because right. it puts people around the table and the overtime the overtime logo is designed to signal to people like hey everyone's welcome into the community gotcha. um, and it's just a, it's just a different a different approach whereas I think you know if if you listen to mm-hmm. you know listen to other other sports outlets unfortunately you hear rhetoric that that divides people like you're a Knicks fan or you're not a Knicks fan or right. you're a true Lakers fan or you're not a true Lakers fan, mm-hmm. or you're a Warriors fan when they were in Oakland, but now that they're in San Francisco, you cheer for somebody else. So mm-hmm. like, like our whole, our whole vibe and, and our, the energy of our company and what we derive from our community mm-hmm. is really derived from this notion that sports is all of us. It's not just the winning team. So it's not just the other team. It's not just our team. It's everybody. Gotcha. So it's, it's interesting you say some of these things because some of the guests that I've had previously talk about how content is changing every single day you know there it's not like back in you know the 80s and 90s where it was traditionally just you know cable media broadcast media now it's way more interactive and pretty much anyone can be a content creator or interact with uh different brands or different athletes and i want to know uh just from your perspective do you think that sort of the way that people interact on social media or wherever they or wherever younger people are interacting do you think that Overtime has a leg up because of that. Do you think that the traditional media forms that we've come to know over the last 50, 60 years or so, do you think that overtime itself has a leg up for the future because of how they are able to sort of have a new brand, have a sort of the two-way communication, have a way that they can interact with younger people better than I would say most of the other different outlets out there? Yeah, it's a great question, Ian. I, I think the answer to the question is is mostly yes, but I want to caveat it a bit. Um, when you think about you know other other brands who are trying to express themselves, either publishing slash broadcasting brands or CPG brands, retail brands, you know automotive brands, people that are trying to engage younger audiences, mm-hmm. we we one hundred percent have an advantage versus versus those brands. In fact. Many of those brands reach out to us and ask us for advice uh, and consultancies <laughs> to be able to help them understand how they engage with these younger audiences wow. because factually they know what we know, which is people are watching less TV. So right. if you look at eight adults who are 18 to 49 years old, people that are 35 to 49 watch two and a half times the amount of live sports that adults 18 to 34 watch. Right. 
Right. Now, there's there's no reason for that. They're not working longer hours. They're not, you know, doing something different. Like they have as much recreational time, but it's just the way they've been socialized and what they find, you know, rewarding and satiating. And for a lot of people, the one-way communication of television doesn't work. And so right. most most commercial brands um, have been highly dependent on that. Right. And now they're now they're forced into social media. It's it's amazing if you think about just something like TikTok. Mm-hmm. You know, over overtime's positioning on TikTok is as big or bigger than ESPN's. Wow. And, wow. and ESPN is a $50 billion company. Right. So, um, you know, our Instagram following is bigger than 26, 26 NBA teams. Wow. You know, our, our just our, our new team, or excuse me, our new league, Overtime Elite, has a bigger social following than 295 in the Division One schools to play basketball. Hmm. The only ones that are bigger are Indiana, Kentucky, uh, Michigan, and, and uh, North Carolina. And it's just amazing that that a little company like ours based in Brooklyn, New York, is able to do this. And the reason why we're able to do it is we have highly skilled content creators that understand Mm -hmm. how the Internet works, how social works and how people want to engage with content and when they want to engage with it. Mm -hmm. Um, And those are simple things to say on a a radio show or during an interview like this. Mm -hmm. They are really hard to do consistently. And one of the other advantages that Overtime has that I think people that don't know our business don't really understand is that many of the people that represent overtime business as a, as talent, meaning the faces and voices and energy and hearts of, of who overtime is as a company right. are full-time employees. Mm. And so they're not contract employees. They're not influencers that work for, you know, 50 other handles. Mm-hmm. They, they only work for us. And I think that's a, that's a huge strategic advantage to what we do. Mm-hmm. And, and in that regard, definitely gives us a leg up versus our competition. It's, it's very, you know, a lot of the things you just mentioned there, sort of you have the, the huge following, more than uh, all these different teams and all these Division One athletics programs. That's really surprising to me just in terms of how big of a footprint that Overtime has in the social media world and the fact that, you know, you have all of this, um, you have this, uh, I would say, loyalty in terms of the people who work for you. And, you know, you say all these great numbers and metrics and it really you know, puts a, I would say a sort of a number based on how successful you guys are doing. But do you think those numbers are necessarily, do they translate to success? Meaning like, I know obviously these are very important and they mean a lot to sort of how different brands who may want to partner with you or different athletes. But do you think that that alone is what translates to overtime success? Is that what sort of is the main factor or are there other things in there as well? Um, I mean, the, the the metrics that I just described, I don't think necessarily translate into success because those are really, you know, surface level. Mm-hmm. But when you talk about, you know, our watch time on YouTube uh-huh. and the total number, total number of hours and the total level of engagement we have across all of our social channels, that's what really differentiates us as a business. And that's what truly matters. So ha- having, you know, if you, th- if you think about it, like about retail, the number of people that walk into your store. Mm-hmm is not nearly as important as the number of people who buy I something in so. your store. Gotcha. And you know, I'd rather have five people walk in my store and go five for five than have 50 people walk in my store and only have one of those 50 buy something. Right. And, and engagement on, on social media is exactly the same way because the, the volume of which you know, think of it in your own life or anybody's listening to the show, think how many times you're online or on, on your phone you know, scrolling through content, right. how many times do you go deep and lean into something mm-hmm. and how long do you watch for, you know, three minutes or five minutes? And then you think about overtime's average watch time in excess of 10 minutes on YouTube. Mm-hmm. And that's hundreds of millions of minutes. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's one of those things as a signal for success. What I would say is like, yeah, I mean, it, it's one thing to be able to do something for a lot of people. It's another thing to do something for a lot of people very often gotcha. and that's that's really what we're able to do mm-hmm. that we're able to tell these stories mm-hmm. and engage with fans and do things on a consistent basis that quite frankly i don't think anybody else mm-hmm. at least at least in the in the world i know which is sports mm-hmm. uh, anywhere else in the sports world is able to do yeah I, I mean it's remarkable definitely and it's what i thought was really interesting is like you know, when people say impressions, you know, you think of views and you think of, you know, you think of views, you think of comments, you think of people who actually, you know, engage with the content. And, you know, I think what makes you guys so valuable is just how, you know, when people are commenting and, you know, these long engaging watch times, it's, it's more valuable to anyone who you're going to partner with. And, you know, do you think that 
are athletes more attracted to that? Do you think if you told them that, hey, listen, all the people who watch our content are really engaging with us, they're commenting, they're sharing it with their friends. Do you think that that's sort of like the one of your u- most unique selling points? I mean, for sure. I mean, if we, we, you know, whether it's meeting with an athlete, an influencer, a brand, you know, we walk in the door and we say, you know, in calendar year 2021, mm-hmm. you know, we had almost 20 billion views and, you know, we had 6 billion minutes watched and we have almost 60 million followers. Yeah. Like nobody else has those kind of metrics. Right. Right. You know, yeah. I, and those I, are yeah. those. And, you know, again, those aren't that's not us grading our own homework. There's third parties that measure this kind of, of stuff. Of course. Of course. But, but they're they're massive numbers and it's just it's tremendous success mm-hmm. and success we're really proud of. So, um, you know, and, and again, I think the real appeal of our business um, to to, you know, the educated eye is that we're doing it with a young audience. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if we were doing this with, you know, a cradle to grave of people from the age of two to the people the age of 65, it may not matter as much. Right. But we're doing this with an audience that basically 80 percent is between the ages of 18 and 34. Mm-hmm. And that's really, really valuable because wow. what we all know to be true is that people just aren't watching TV, even live sports. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think about that great New York Knicks game last night. Yeah. when The Knicks were able to beat the Celtics oh, yeah. Absolutely. You know, on, a, on, a, on a buzzer beater. Mm-hmm. Um, incredibly exciting. I don't know how many people watched that game last night. And, and you, you're right. I mean, I'm. I know for a fact that way more people are going to be watching the highlight of R.J. Barrett's shot than we're actually engaging with it or watching it on MSG or um, uh, one of the local cable providers just because of you know just pure numbers and what what people are interested in. They're interested in that moment, not necessarily the whole game itself. Would you say that to be true? Exactly right. And and I I don't know that that to be altogether different than, you know, 30 years ago when people said, hey, don't just read the headline, read the story, Mm -hmm. or they're listening to to radio highlights or watching, you know, watching sports highlights on the 10 o'clock news. Right. It's just that all those audiences can be measured now. Mm -hmm. And that's the big difference. And, you know, as you know, it kind of goes back to one of your earlier questions about why, you know, why overtime matters and what we're doing different. Mm -hmm. I think really what it comes down to is. What we what we believe is that our fans have an insatiable appetite for the, the stories that we're trying to tell. And to the extent that we can produce a higher volume of content mm-hmm. and get it to more and more people, our business continues to grow. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there's no glass ceiling in terms of what we can potentially do. And that's that's an interesting counterpoint to the, that earlier narrative that I suggested that, uh-huh. you know, how people are watching less live sports. Mm-hmm. Yes. And, yeah, that, that may be true. But the reality is they're not they're not less educated sports fans like even what you and I just discussed about, you know, R.J. Barrett hitting that, you know, hitting that bank shot to win the game last night. The the number of people that are aware of that is way higher today than as a percent of the population than what it would have been 10, 15, 20 years ago Mm -hmm. because of social media. Absolutely. And that's the difference. Absolutely. So what we're trying to say is that that game winning game winning three pointer from RJ Barrett mm-hmm. if we can create the same energy around something like that as we do with a, a series with Justin Fields or with Kate right. Cunningham I see. that's what we want to do I see. and that's that's the point i say wow it's i i like how you were able to sort of connect it to how you know these these stories that you're trying to create and sort of the energy with RJ Barrett's moment i can see how you can sort of connect the two and bring that to a wider audience. And I'm going to shift a little bit now towards your background a little bit. And, you know, for the majority of your career, you worked in traditional media. You worked for CBS, you worked for Turner, and now over the last five, 10 years or so, it has been with overtime. And I want to know, did you have to really make a lot of changes in your mindset and your thinking? You know, a lot of the things that we've discussed are talking about how traditional media is going the wayside. And, you know, now that you're with the new company, do you see, are there lessons to be learned? Are there things you never realized before? What was sort of the biggest shock factor for you when you made that transition? Well, I, th- I think the biggest change I had to make was really my wardrobe versus my mindset. <laughs> so I had to throw out, I had to throw out the, the suits and ties and, and, you know, get jeans and hoodies on. Mm-hmm. And I say that jokingly, but the reality is, we're we're in a much more casual business environment today than what we were when I started in business. Mm-hmm. Um, but the reason why I love what I'm doing now at Overtime and what I did previously at Pluto and at Bleacher Report is these are the growth opportunities. Mm-hmm. You know these these are the you know these are the ways that you know 
as, as human beings and as a society, we're, we're trying to invest and grow in each other's ideas and, and, and foster new ideas and build upon people's ideas. And that's really the beauty of the internet. You know, it's, it's billions and trillions of little Lego blocks of ideas that all stack on top of each other, you know, trying to do something great. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I say that in a way that I, I don't want to be dismissive of what I learned, you know, during my first 18 years of my career at right. CBS or, right. or even at Turner Sports. I mean, these, these are tremendous companies with tremendous enterprises valued in the tens of billions of dollars uh, with, with phenomenal people, great leadership, lifelong friends. Um, but business is just changing, you know. Mm-hmm. And I see, I see it in my own family where even if something as popular as the Super Bowl, which I think you and I and most people would agree is the most important three and a half hours or four hours of television that occurs during Com- the course complete, of the year. Completely agree with you there. Even an event like that, even for my family of five, mm-hmm. even if I just talk about the halftime show, it's still hard to ask young adults today to sit in front of the television without their phone in their hand. Mm. And because of that, what you have to say to yourself is, okay, what's going to be like 10 years from now? What's going to be like 20 years from now? And, you know, I certainly don't want to go down the rabbit hole of talking about the metaverse and what that means potentially. (laughs) But but that's going to be very, very different as is Web 3.0 than anything we're talking about today or anything we would have talked about 15 years ago. So, you know, for for me, it was about, you know, personal growth and development and a journey uh, and, and interest and really a thirst to try to 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 learn something new and, and do something different, but also a, as a business person, respond to the need of change mm-hmm. and you know the reality that that the way I thought about those kids in the nineteen twenties and thirties mm-hmm. laying down on their stomachs on an itchy wool rug in front of a, <laughs> of, in front of a wooden box called a radio mm-hmm. while mom and dad listened to a, a talk show mm-hmm. like that that's that that it might as well be on another planet right. And what I realize now, you know, as, as I work at overtime is the way I think about enjoying television, the way I enjoyed it as a kid and as a young adult, yeah. you know, my kids think about that the same way I thought about, you know, people listening to the radio and it's just, it's just an evolution. And I think what eventually, you know, overtime is doing is overtime is bridging the gap between what traditional video viewing was in the television age to what the new viewing experience will be in the, in the age of the metaverse, you know, 10, 15 years from now. And I think what we're doing today at overtime looks much more like what the metaverse experience will be like uh-huh. um, than what the TV experience looked like at ESPN or Turner or at CBS five or 10 years ago. I see. And are you, are you worried about the future of traditional sports? I've asked this actually to a couple of my guests who have all sort of had different variations of yes, no, but here's a couple things. Why are you worried about like the future of a, like a, a typical NBA game or an NFL game in terms of traditional media forms? Um, I, I don't think so. I think um, I think it'll just be really different. Um, I, I, I guess what I would share with you is, you know, when people say to me like, "Well, yeah, this this whole metaverse thing, it feels like it's really far off, and it feels like a lot of hocus pocus, and mm-hmm. you know, it doesn't really doesn't really impact me." Mm-hmm. But then I say to them, it's like, did you ever see Jurassic Park? Mm. And they're like, yeah. I'm like, what if I could put you on the floor standing next to R.J. Barrett when he hit that three pointer uh-huh. last night and feel what he felt from his from his teammates and from the fans that were falling over the, the front row desk and right. the beers getting spilled like that to me is the future of highlights. I say. So when people say, are you worried about sports? I'm like, no, I think it's just going to get better and better. In gotcha. fact. What what I think about Ian a lot is yeah. where I was worried about sports is when sports started getting really flat because of technology uh-huh. in advance of HD. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a sport like hockey, because that silly, whatever they call it at Fox, the taser, the laser, or the, yes, the, yes. The, the chase or whatever it was, <laughs> because it was so hard to follow the puck. And nowadays, like no one will even think about that, because when you're watching a hockey game, you're watching on a 65 inch television in HD delivered you know, right. super high quality bandwidth. Mm-hmm. And it's a phenomenal viewing experience. It almost feels like you're, you're at the stadium. So I, um, I, I don't really, I don't really worry about the future pro sports. In fact, uh, you know, many times I go to bed at night thinking about how great it's going to be to be able to see some of these things mm-hmm. that are all going to come to fruition. Um, because the one thing that I know to be true is if it's good for one league, the other league wants it. If it's good for one team, the other team wants it. If it's good for one player, another player wants it. And, that creates a competitive environment 
that really embodies the whole American spirit, you know, the spirit of competition and, and makes things great. I, I love your optimism about it. You know, I, I've heard so many different variations of, yeah, there are going to be these huge changes and all that stuff. But I really like how you sort of seem to have a good representation of so many positives that can come out of the Web 3.0 experience and how many different things can come from that. And, you know, as we wrap up here, last thing I wanted to ask you, I wanted to get a little bit in on Overtime Elite because I know it's one of Overtime's biggest ventures diving into sort of the um, the, the recruiting world, the world of high school and college sports. Uh, just in terms, I don't want to necessarily give us an overview, but just a, a sort of a quick summary of why this could potentially have implications for the future of recruiting college sports. What do you think are the biggest impacts of having such a monumental change in the way that um, basketball talent is developed? Yeah, another good question. And I, and I applaud you for doing all your research on that. I, I, I don't think, and in, in look, there's been a lot of public statements. You've seen what we did in the New York Times Magazine, what yes. we talked about on today's show. Yes. Lots of other venues. Our, our commissioner, Aaron Ryan's talked about this. Our head of basketball operations has talked about this. What we're really saying is that it's just a, it's about choice and that these athletes um, should have the same choices that athletes in the sport of golf have, that athletes in the sport of soccer have, and athletes in the sport of tennis and others have. Um, you know, for example, if I was 14 years old and I was living in London mm -hmm. and I was a super talented soccer player, I would have already been signed by one of the Premier League teams mm -hmm. and I would have competed in that academy at 14 and 15. By the age of 16, I would then be getting paid. And at the age of 19, I'd be in the position, assuming that I've been successful, to sign a maximum contract and play for that Premier League team or mm -hmm. be transferred to another Premier League team uh, at a premium and be paid by that team. Mm -hmm. So as I think about one of the most popular sports in the world in soccer, in a league like the Premier League, why should basketball, the greatest country in the world, be treated differently uh -huh. than the way soccer is played you know, uh, in England or in Germany or in Italy or in Greece or in Argentina or in Japan or in China? It just doesn't it doesn't make any sense to us. And so the, the one thing I think that's hard for, you know, change, look, change is always hard for, for everybody for every reason. And I understand that. But one thing that's uniquely American mm -hmm. is high school sports. Oh, yeah, absolutely. High, high, high school high school sports don't really exist anywhere else in the world. Wow. Yeah. You know, I never really thought and, about that, but you're right. I mean, to some extent, even college athletics doesn't really, you know, doesn't really exist outside of the United States. It, it does, but not at the same level. Mm -hmm. And so there's this whole infrastructure of people that are invested in high school sports or people that invest in college sports that view us as a competitive threat. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a legitimate concern on their part, perhaps because, you know, I can always sit in my house and worry that it's going to rain or snow tomorrow. Right. Um, but the business reality is this, even in the best case scenario where we have a hundred athletes participating in overtime lead or even 200 athletes, mm -hmm. you're talking about a subset of hundreds of thousands of athletes that play high school basketball in excess of 5,000 athletes that play division one basketball, mm -hmm. you know, and you know, whatever to be one of the 450 athletes that end up playing in the NBA. Mm -hmm. Like the, the logic is wrong. Yeah. You know, like all we're trying to do is for these elite athletes who have to endure incredible stress, both financial and emotional, mm -hmm. participating in AAU tournaments, traveling all around the country to showcase their skills, Mm -hmm. being be, being put in a position where something has to be compromised in many cases it's their academics mm -hmm. and we oh, know that 80 percent 80 percent of the time of the top 100 high school athletes in the in the country they're transferring high school at least transferring schools at least one time in their high school period mm -hmm. to optimize for basketball uh -huh. that tells you exactly what you need to know right and that could be you know a young guy living in ryan new york who leaves Rye High School to go to Iona Prep or Fordham Prep sure. or or someplace else? Mm -hmm. But it could also mean Mikey Williams moving from Southern California to North Carolina. Uh -huh. And I see. What we're saying is, if we can relieve some of that financial stress, and if we can improve the financial literacy training, and if we can increase the the rate of academic acceleration for all these athletes as they prepare to become professional basketball players, uh -huh. either in the United States for the NBA or elsewhere, then Aren't we doing the right thing? And that's really what it comes down to. Wow. Um, yeah. No, no one, no one has ever told me that somebody who's a gamer, who's the age, who's this age of sixteen, mm -hmm. who's already sold the sponsorship, shouldn't be able to do that. Wow. Nobody's ever said that to me. So you have all these gamers all over the country 
playing in these competitions for hundreds of thousands of dollars uh-huh. with sponsorships, yeah. and nobody seems to care. But boy, if you bounce the basketball up and down, and you know you're six foot seven, and you're able to dunk. All of a sudden, it's like you're you're challenging the very fabric of our, our of our of our institution. Mm-hmm. It just it seems too far afield to me. Wow. So um, I, I don't want to be on my soapbox, but I just want to exhibit that you know we're not trying to deconstruct high school basketball or college basketball or life as we know it. All we're trying to do is give a few very talented athletes an opportunity to do something they've always dreamed about doing, which is playing professional basketball. And we also want to help them with academic acceleration along the way. So that that's that's our mission. That's our goal. Hey, you know what? There's so many things that you said in there that sort of speak to how the industry's changing so much, how there are going to be, uh, you know, I love the Premier League comparison, sort of the way that it's structured in Europe compared to how it's just, basketball's just as big here, but it's not necessarily the same format. And you guys want to reflect that both in the way you develop players and how you publicize them. So, Rich, you've certainly given us a lot to think about in terms of the future of sports content, uh, recruiting, so many different things that Overtime has gotten involved with. And we really appreciate you giving your time to us here and discussing all this stuff with us. As always, Ian, thanks very much. Thanks for having me and enjoy the weekend and enjoy the NFL playoffs, which are coming up soon. Watch them on TV. Do something different. (laughs) (laughs) That's very very true, Rich. Thank you very much, Rich. Talk soon. Thank you. Have have a good night. Thank you.